0: Well, we uh, we continue this morning in the book of James, and today we move into chapter four. Now, before we get into chapter four, I want to take you all the way back to the very beginning, uh, to uh, to James chapter one. And if you remember, there at the very end of chapter one, James speaks of of true religion or or genuine faith, uh, saying that. That, that real genuine faith is always marked by real genuine fruit uh, being, being born out of our lives. And so a central concern that James has in writing this letter uh, is, is for an outward expression of faith, uh, a visible manifestation of it as evidence that real faith resides in us. And if you remember, he gives us three marks or three fruits of genuine faith. A care for the poor, uh, the marginalized, uh, control of the tongue, in other words, the way that we speak about and relate to others, and keeping ourselves from conformity to the world. Now, we've already looked at those, uh, those first two marks uh, because James has already addressed them, and today we begin to consider this third mark of genuine faith, uh, keeping ourselves from conformity to the world, or to put it positively, becoming more fully devoted to God. Our passage uh, this morning is James chapter 4, the first six verses, and before we hear this part of God's Word, uh, let's go to Him in prayer. Well, Almighty God, uh, we do thank you for your word, and we come as those uh, this day who want to and who need to hear and to understand, to have the eyes of our hearts opened that we might see and believe. And so we do ask now that you would awaken us, opening us to your word and your word to us, for it's in Jesus we pray, amen. And so I invite you now to hear the Word of God, James chapter 4, beginning with verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. But, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And this is God's word. Well, as you can probably tell, chapter 4 picks up where chapter 3 left off. Uh, chapter 4 goes even deeper into the heart than we saw last week. And again, as we, as we did talk about last week, biblically speaking, uh, the heart is, is, is the very center of who we are, not just a part of who we are, but the very center, uh, our, our motivation headquarters. Uh, that, that's what the Bible is talking about when it refers to the heart, uh, the very center of us that informs not only how we feel, but also what we think, what we will, how we act. Now, if you weren't with us last week, you might go back and and listen to what we talked about because it will definitely help you better hear uh, James' explanation and exhortation here today. And what we're going to see in James 4 today is this, we're going to see that there is a cancer within our hearts. Uh, There is a cause for that cancer, and there's also a cure for it. And so, cancer, cause, and cure... That's what we're going to be looking at. And so first, the cancer, verses 1 to 3. James begins, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel we'll stop there for now. So I want you to note that this passage begins very similarly to the passage we looked at last week. It begins with a question. But I want you to note that the question is not, are there fights among you? But rather, why are there fights among you? In other words, James is simply acknowledging the reality that there are fights among us. There are conflicts within the body of Christ, the church. And why? Well, James tells us. He explains that it's because our passions are at war within us. Okay, so the the Greek word used for passions here in verse 1, it's where we get our English word hedonism. It it connotes uh, sinful, self-indulgent pleasure. And and then further, the word used for desire in verse 2, it's a compound word. Uh, The word is epithumia, uh, meaning uh, epi-desire, over-desire, hyper-desire. And so simply put, what James is is talking about is he he is saying that we have these uh, hyper-selfish desires that are at war within us. One commentator notes... Selfish passions make believers wage war within themselves as their desires to serve Christ and neighbor conflict with the desire to serve self. And so what happens when when this internal conflict goes unchecked is it, it eventually boils over into external conflict, fighting among Christian brothers and sisters. And of course, as you heard, James uses very strong language here. Uh, uses the word murder, fight. Now, it's, it's unlikely that the people were, were literally, physically killing each other. But if you think back to how Jesus talks to us about, about murder, is, is He says that we have a murderous anger in our hearts. He talks about that back in Matthew 5. And the word used here for fights, it refers specifically to, to verbal conflict okay, to to verbal combat. And of course, there are causes worth fighting for, definitely. But what James is getting at is that so often our fighting is born out of selfish desires, rather than noble causes. So some of you know that that years ago, I, I served in campus ministry down in North Carolina. I worked with InterVarsity, I uh, had, had a wonderful six years doing that, and, and one of my favorite things was a fall conference uh, that we did. And as staff, it was an area conference, and as staff, we would show up on Friday afternoon uh, to get everything set up in, in time for the students who would arrive that evening. Uh, we offered four tracks that the students could sign up for, uh, and in, in the track that I led, it was, it was an evangelism track, uh, it, uh, it was made up mostly of, of upperclassmen, and it had a, and I'll put air quotes around it, a nicer classroom uh, than the, the freshman track that my colleague uh, Bob would lead. And, and, and I, I, I say it was a nicer classroom, that it was a retreat center, but really it was just a, a rustic rundown campground. It was cheap, so we went there. But I remember this one afternoon when we were were setting up and and Bob uh, came over before we were unpacking everything and and asked the question, hey, Camper, what, what do you think about us switching classrooms this year? I didn't really appreciate the question. And so I bristled. And the next thing you know, he bristles. And all of a sudden, we are in this war of words. I mean, it is, it is verbal blows going at each other. And, and, and it took our colleague Rochelle stepping in to break up the fight. And, it, it, and I remember as we reflected on it, I thought, what in the world is going on? And it's the selfish desires within. It's that murderous anger. And it was a horrible testimony to the goodness of God's grace. So, to paraphrase James, he is saying that there is conflict among you because there is conflict within you. And these first couple of verses in chapter 4, they give us a good picture of what we uh, looked at at the very end of chapter 3 last week, don't they? Uh, A good picture of that that destructive living, uh, the, the worldly wisdom, the false wisdom from below made up of bitterness. Selfish desires. Well, thinking back to to wisdom, not only last week, but do do you remember the first time that James addresses wisdom in his letter? The first time he addresses it is way back at the very beginning of chapter 1. And he says this, If any of you lacks wisdom, and remember, we talked last week about uh, wisdom being primarily relational... And so if anyone lacks wisdom, let him what? Let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. And then James goes on to say that we should ask in faith. Okay, we should ask as those who are who are looking to and trusting God to provide what is best. And further, he says that if we are to ask otherwise, that is to, to tell God how to run his universe, to, in a sense, manipulate him on our behalf, if we're to do that, he says, you shouldn't expect to receive anything from the Lord, saying that when we do that, we are double-minded, we are unstable in all our ways. Okay, so back to to our chapter today, chapter 4, says verses 2 and 3, you do not have. Why? Because you do not ask. But sometimes you do ask. You ask, but then you don't receive. Why? because you ask wrongly. Because you ask wrongly. So, I, I remember uh, years ago at another church, a married couple, they had a miserable marriage, and they decided after a time to, to seek out uh, pastoral uh, counseling. And, and it, it, it turned out in, in conversations with, with each of them individually that not only was their, their marriage miserable, uh, they, they had studied the Bible, they wanted to be good Christian folks, and they did not believe that divorce was God's design. And it also came out that each spouse was praying for the other, which sounds really nice. Except it came to light how they were praying for one another because they each took vows until death do us part. Yeah, they were praying unbeknownst to the other, Lord, would you just strike her down? Lord, would you take him today? If a bus hit him, I would be free. Now, did they? Yeah, this is really how they were praying. And and so did they get what they asked for? No, they were asking wrongly. I'm glad that you see that that is wrong asking. Okay, so that, that's, a bit, that's very specific, and it might seem very far off for us, but, but let it, let's, let's think about it more broadly, because it really does apply to all of us. Uh, British pastor and evangelist uh, Rico Tice says this, "'We often turn God into a divine waiter. He is there to deliver our daydream to us. We touch base with Him on Sundays. Uh, we put our order in via prayer. Uh, we might give a decent tip in the collection plate.' But God is essentially there to give us what we feel we need, and we get furious with Him when He doesn't deliver. So James is saying that sometimes we just don't ask, and other times we simply don't ask in faith, but rather we're asking out of of selfish desire. And James is saying that there is a cancer within our hearts, and it is one that will destroy the body, the body of Christ, the church. And so that's the disease. Let's now consider the cause of it. And so next, the cause, verses 4 and 5. And James continues, You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says, he yearns jealously over the Spirit that he has made to dwell in us? You adulterous people. I mean, that is quite the accusation. And so what in the world is going on here, especially in light of the fact that James has already warned us about taming the tongue? Has he just lost it here, or is he being very intentional? Well, I would argue that he's being very intentional, because what he's doing is he is actually speaking in the prophetic tradition of the Old Testament, rightly accusing God's people of looking away from him, of running from him, of committing spiritual adultery. Jeremiah quotes the Lord saying this, like a woman unfaithful to her husband, so you, my people, have been unfaithful to me. And Jesus calls religious people who reject him a wicked and adulterous generation. So we we have weddings here, no surprise, from time to time, uh, often during the summer, uh, many of you have been to those weddings, you're, you're sitting in the correct seats, and, uh, and, and so you, you, you've been sitting there, and you've seen when the bride and the groom are up here, uh, at the very end they kiss, they're pronounced husband and wife, and then the recessional begins and the bride and the groom go first. And there's always that, that brief moment, and as a pastor it's kind of neat because I can see out there, but there's a brief moment when it's, when it's just the two of them. Now, I want you to imagine for for just a moment that as soon as they get out there and they're looking at each other, star, 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 starry-eyed and everything, then all of a sudden another woman comes out from around the corner and says to the groom, hey, honey, and plants a big kiss on him. And then this new groom turns to his new wife and says, oh, I forgot to introduce you to my other lover. I mean, it, it, it's ridiculous. It, it's unimaginable. It's infuriating. I, in fact, I could never imagine that happening. But that's, in a sense, what James is getting at here. Only he's not saying that, that we're the ones being cheated on. He is saying that we are the cheaters, that we're the unfaithful spouse, that we are the adulterer. You adulterous people, As another pastor has said, just as no wife tolerates a husband who takes on another lover, so the Lord will not tolerate other lovers. You adulterous people, in in essence, James declares you are married to Jesus, and yet you are sleeping with the world. Christ dwells in your heart, and yet you invite other lovers into it. And why why does he use such strong language here? Well, it's because sin is so terribly heinous. You know, we often don't think about how bad sin really is. But James is here saying, warning from a place of love, calling his people, calling God's people back, he is saying that friendship with the world is so terribly heinous it's sleeping with the enemy. It's adultery, plain and simple. Okay, so friendship with the world. Let's talk about that word, a friendship, for a moment, because you know we often use the friend, uh, the word friend, uh, casually. Uh, might use it on social media, uh, you know, some, somebody we've never even met, but met, but often we're thinking of, of it in terms of casual acquaintances. But that was was not so in the days of James. One historian notes in antiquity true friends shared a mindset and an outlook on life they shared interests values and good and goals they saw life in much the same way they shared goods as necessary they cared for each other and worked together their lives were bound together as one now we can be friendly towards anybody. In fact, we should. We should be kind to everyone. But we cannot be true friends with the world. In other words, we must reject the world's values as a basis for identity. What are some of the world's values? Let me just briefly highlight two, okay? Acquisition and accomplishment. So the world values acquisition, uh, fulfillment. Your identity rests in, in it, it is defined by, by what you own, okay, experiences that you have. Now, the world also values accomplishment. And so, so status, it, it's gained by, by making something of yourself, getting a good education, working hard, reaching your goals. Now, are either of these in and of themselves wrong? No. No, acquisition and accomplishment are not wrong in and of themselves. In fact, we should, being good stewards, we should make the most of the gifts and the skills and the opportunities that God has given us. But we cannot befriend the world by defining ourselves and others according to what we have, what we've done, what our station in life is. To do so, according to James, is to make ourselves an enemy of God because it's finding our identity elsewhere. And so to do so is to commit spiritual adultery. In verse 5, which, which it doesn't quote a specific Bible verse, uh, but rather an overall biblical theme, uh, verse 5 says this, and this is the most literal translation I can give, The Spirit, which He has caused to dwell in us, desires us with jealousy. And the point is this, that our God is a jealous God, not in the sinful ways that we are jealous, but in in, in a way that is of of perfection and purity and holiness because He is 100% committed to His people. And He will not tolerate any other lovers. So, what are we to do? Well, that brings us to our final point, the cure. And So, lastly, the, the cure for the cancer within. And to see the cure, we need to look into the mirror of God's Word. Uh, we, we, we spoke about this a few months ago. If you were here back in September when we kicked off this uh, sermon series in, in the book of James, uh, you may remember that At the end of chapter 1, James likens God's Word to a mirror, and and this has really been one of the most helpful images, biblical images for me in my life, and and I think it's always worth repeating and coming back to. And so again, the the purpose of a mirror is to to show you your face, and if there's dirt on your face, to show you that there's dirt on your face. The, The purpose of a mirror is not to wash off the dirt but it it is to drive the person who sees that dirt, to drive them to the the soap and water that cleans it off. And so similarly, the purpose of God's word is to drive the person who sees their sin to drive them to Jesus, who washes and cleanses. Okay, so if, if you want to think about how James is trying to apply all of this right now, he is calling us out for sin and saying, see it but let God's Word drive you to the Savior to cleanse it. And so when we talked about the the mirror of God's Word, we we talked about uh, two things uh, that you'll see. And I I heard it put this way uh, years ago, that that you'll see that you are radically fallen due to sin, and at the same time, you will see that you are infinitely exalted through faith in Jesus. And so, radically fallen, infinitely exalted. On, On the one hand... You see that you are messed up just like everyone else. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. We're all in the same sinking boat. You need a Savior. The person next to you, in front of you, behind you, needs a Savior. You are radically fallen and thus in radical need of a Savior, Jesus. And so then on the other hand, you see that you are valued, infinitely valued, just like everyone else, everyone being created in in the image of God, something Gwen prayed about earlier, created in the image of God, and thus everyone having inherent dignity and worth. Christ died for you. Christ died for those around you. And through faith in Him, you are infinitely exalted in Him. And so that's what we see in in a broad sense, what we see in the mirror of God's Word. But what about specifically here in chapter 4 of James? What do we see? Well, on the one hand, we see that we are an adulterous people, uh, conflicted hearts, lovers of the world, unfaithful to God. But then on the other hand, we see that we are infinitely loved people, loved by God who rather then despise us for our unfaithfulness, discarding us because of it. He still desires us, pursues us, and pours His grace out on us. Isaiah declares, the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The Lord will call you back as if you were a wife discarded and distressed. With deep compassion, I, will bring you back, says the Lord. And so you see, instead of discarding us, the Lord comes after us. He pursues us. And He pursues us with these words, verse 6. But He gives more grace. He gives more grace. Therefore, it says... God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God gives more grace. And here's here's the thing about grace. grace. Grace does two things. It both kills the cancer within and also breathes new life into our hearts. And James wants us to see that in love, God showers His favor upon who? He showers His favor upon those who will receive it. In other words, He showers His favor upon the humble. Let's think about that word for a moment, humble, humility. Humility, something that we all struggle with, and yet something essential to receiving grace. So it's been a few years, but I've shared this story before. Uh, back when I was in my mid to late twenties for about five years, uh, there was an, an older gentleman, I mean, he's about 20 years older than me. And he he spiritually mentored me for about those five years. His name was Ty. And, uh, and, and so I'd asked if we could meet once a month. And so we did. And there was one morning when we were Catching up over breakfast. It had actually been two or three months since we'd seen each other. And we were having a great conversation over breakfast. At least I thought it was a great conversation. But but Ty was paying, he, he began to notice something in the way I was re- relating to him, in, in the questions that I asked, in the words that I was saying. He noticed something that I couldn't see. And eventually it became clear to him. And what he noticed is that I was trying to earn his favor, his friendship. I was trying to earn his care of me. And so he, he, he very graciously and yet firmly interrupted the conversation. And he looked at me and he said, Camper, you don't receive very well, do you? Receiving is at the heart of the gospel. And if you never learn to receive you're never going to truly understand grace. And do you see what he was doing? He, he, he was calling me for my, my prideful self-reliance, and he, he was calling me to a posture of humility, of receiving. And that's the very thing that James is doing for all of us here. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Grace does not oppose effort, but it does oppose earning. Brothers and sisters, the Christian life is founded upon grace, and we can only receive that grace when we are living in a posture of humility. I mean, if you think about it, we can't receive grace when we have clenched fists of selfish, prideful self-reliance. I mean, if, if my fists are clenched, you can hand me anything. You can give me anything, I can't receive it. And so often this, this is our posture in life. I can do it. I can handle this. We can only receive grace when our hands are open, in in, in humble Christ reliance. Open and ready to receive from him and often through others from him, receiving his all sufficient grace every moment of every day. Now, James says that we all struggle with that. He, he says that we all uh, stumble and fall in many ways. And yet, and yet, when we turn to Jesus, what he is saying is that when we turn to Jesus with open hands, through the gifts of repentance and faith, day in and day out, he is saying that when we turn to Jesus, we are given grace upon grace. For God gives more grace. His grace is greater than our sin. His grace is more abundant and more beautiful and more powerful and more essential than we could ever imagine. God gives more grace. And this is the gospel according to James. And this is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks, be to God. Let's pray. Well, O oh God of grace, oh how we thank you, we thank you for your persistent pursuing, saving, sustaining grace, we ask that you would continue to grow us, grow us into humble people who turn from our sin more and more, our sin of prideful, self-righteous, self-reliance, and grow us as those who rest in you, who continually turn to you, you who are our rock and our redeemer. Amen.